0: Oh, Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink and this is Chris DeGenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, May 9, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. You know, I did a program on, on Saturday and I called a bunch of people out. I have so many clowns running around out there misrepresenting things that I say, and I swear they do it on purpose just so that they can have straw man arguments to argue against. And, 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 and they do that usually as sock puppets. So we have sock puppets and straw man arguments, and, and they just won't face me in person and, 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 and demonstrate that I'm wrong about the scripture. When are identity Christians going to stop accepting liars and clowns? When are they going to stand up firm on the core issues of God and race, represented by the first two of the Ten Commandments? Right. Honor your father and your mother. That means don't race mix. That's the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob honored Rebekah by marrying a wife of his own people. Esau dishonored his mother by taking Canaanites for wives. And her heart was troubled for the daughters of Heth. She said that if Jacob did like Esau did, that her life would be worthless. Now, there are clowns calling themselves Christian identity pastors and telling you that you must accept the Esau's of the world, along with their bastard offspring. These clowns are serpents and deceivers. Christ had something different to say about the children of fornicators. From Revelation 2.14, from the message to the assembly of Pergamus. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those holding the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a trap before the sons of Israel, that was the daughters of Moab, to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and to commit fornication. Thusly, you have also those holding the teaching of the Nicolaitans in like manner, Therefore repent, but if not, I will come to you quickly, and I shall make war with them with the sword of my mouth. And from Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. From the message to the assembly at Seatira, but I have against you that you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and teaches and deceives my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed to idols, and I have given her time, in order that she would repent, yet she did not wish to repent from her fornication, behold, I cast her into a bed, and those committing adultery with her, mixing their race, into great tribulation, if they do not repent from their works. And I shall slay her children with death, because they are the results of fornication. And all of the assembly shall know that I am he who examines minds and hearts, and I shall give to each according to your works. Fornication is race-mixing. That's how the Apostle Jude defined it, the pursuit of different flesh. That's how the Apostle Paul defined it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, pointing to that same event where Balaam taught Balak to throw a stumbling block block before the children of Israel, the daughters of Moab, Numbers chapters 24 and 25. Fornication is race-mixing. And why is fornication so often associated with idolatry? Because Yahweh is only the God of Israel. He is not the God of the other races. That is why, when Judah married the Canaanite woman, he was said to have married the daughter of a strange God. The Pharisees, disputing with Christ, claimed that we all have one God, and Christ rejected their error, telling them that their father was not God, but the devil. So Yahshua Christ tells the fornicating Jezebel, that I shall slay her children with death. Don't think you are going to get God to accept the products of your fornication. You are deceiving yourself. You pretend to be a Christian, but in reality, you're just another Jewish humanist egalitarian. True love is keeping the Word of God first. And then loving your brother, who also keeps the word of God. True humility is not compromise. True humility is acceding to the word of God, submitting oneself to the word of God. That's true love. That's true humility. Everything else is compromise. We cannot accept bastards. Because Yahweh, our God, will not accept bastards. With that, we will proceed to the epistles of Paul, part 6 in this series on the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 4, we saw the substance of the faith of Abraham, as it was explained by Paul of Tarsus himself that the gifts or the promises of God are for those nations which sprung from the seed of Abraham, from Abraham's loins, as the promises of the Old Testament, which Paul cited, certainly attest. Those promises are not conditional upon the keeping of the law, since they were delivered long before the giving of the law and since they were made without condition. However, On the other hand, with the passing of the Levitical priesthood and the end of the rituals of propitiation, Paul had also explained that those nations descended from Abraham should by nature keep the laws which Yahweh God had written on their hearts. The scoffers and the Judaizers of the first century They sought to keep Christians bound to the rituals of the law and under their own thumbs since they pretended to be experts in the law. The apostles, however, responded negatively to this idea. Peter is recorded as having said in Acts chapter 15, from verse 9, and distinguishing nothing between both us and them. By faith he cleanses their hearts. Therefore now, Why tempt Yahweh to place a yoke upon the necks of the students which neither our fathers nor us have been able to bear? Likewise, James is recorded in that same place, and he says from verse 14, Simeon has declared just how at the first, Yahweh considered to take from among the nations a people in his name. Now, according to the prophets... Those people are scattered Israelites who would return to Christ. Verse 15, and with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. After these things, I shall return, and I shall rebuild the tent of David, which is fallen, and I shall rebuild its ruins, and I shall set it up again. Well, David ruled over all 12 tribes of Israel which split apart and followed after Baal, after Solomon died. And this is the tent to be rebuilt in Christ. Verse 17, that those remaining of men, the remnant of Israel, seek Yahweh and all the nations whom have my name labeled upon them, the nations of the promise to Abraham, says Yahweh doing these things known from of old. Those things known from of old are written in the prophets. So James is talking about the reconciliation of Israel. On which account, continuing with James, I judge not to trouble those from among the nations who turn to Yahweh. In other words, they are not to be placed under the Mosaic law, but to enjoin them to abstain from things polluted by idols, and from fornication, fornication, and from that which is strangled, and from blood. For Moses, from generations of old, has those who are proclaiming him in each city, in the assembly halls, being read each and every Sabbath. Of course, the summons to keep the Ten Commandments were already a part of the Gospel. And there are evident cultural reasons why the Apostle added these few things, which we see here. Clarifying what adultery meant in the Old Testament, James tells the Greek-speaking Christians to abstain from fornication because adultery meant something different to them the word in the septuagint used for adultery meant something different to the greeks fornication more explicitly prohibited race mixing to the greeks among other things but we must know as we've seen here in acts chapter 15 and as it is evident in the epistles of James and Peter, that Paul was in agreement with the apostles concerning the rituals and the laws of Moses. Upon the death of a husband, a wife is no longer subject to the laws of the husband. Paul explains that very thing in Romans chapter 7, because upon the death of Christ, He being Yahweh God, manifest in the flesh. Israel was no longer subject to the laws of God transmitted from Moses after the agreement at Mount Sinai. That's why Paul gives that discourse in Romans chapter 7. We will discuss it at length in the coming weeks. This is the fulfillment of the law which paves the way for the reconciliation of Israel to Yahweh through Christ. However, Paul's challenge was to convince Christians that although they would not be judged by the laws of Moses, as he himself explains, that they nevertheless had to uphold the moral laws of God. And while he mentioned that in Romans chapters 2 and 3, he gives a longer discourse on the subject in Romans chapter 6. Here, however, In Romans chapter 5, which we are about to present, Paul continues to elucidate other aspects of the promises of Scripture relating to salvation, which indeed precede and transcend the law. However, it must be noted that the keeping of God's moral law was and still is a necessary prerequisite to the maintenance of an endemic society, as well as to the health of its individuals. After explaining in Romans chapter 6 why Christians should seek righteousness even though they would not be judged by the law, Paul tells his readers in Romans 6.17 but feel grateful to Yahweh that you were bondmen of sin but you obeyed from the heart into a form into which a form of instruction was transmitted. Pay attention to that verse. With that verse Yahweh had put the laws of his laws into the hearts of the children of Israel, with Romans 6.17, Paul is making a reference to what he had already written concerning the Romans in Romans chapter 2, where he commended them by saying, for when the nations, which do not have the law, by nature practice the things of the law, these not having Law themselves are a law, who exhibit the work of the law written in their hearts. The moral laws of God should therefore be natural to the Adamic man, so long as man seeks to do good. If you read the works of John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, especially Thomas Paine, You'll see natural law mentioned quite often, and they meant the Ten Commandments. They considered that to be the natural law of
1: man. When men
0: seek to do evil and reject God, God rejects man and gives them up to be consumed by their own filth, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 1. That is why, historically, sophistic philosophy and moral decadence naturally precede the downfall of great societies. Look around you. The maintenance of godly Adamic society being the ultimate purpose of God's physical creation, since Adam was indeed placed here to cultivate a garden, and you don't think that refers to tomatoes and potatoes, do you? With the original corruption of that society, the Adamic man nevertheless received the promise of eternal life and a guarantee.
1: In the symbol
0: of the cherub, that the way to eternal life would be maintained. One explanation of this guarantee is elucidated in Paul's epistles here in Romans chapter 5, where it will be made evident that the entire Adamic race, and not Israel alone, even though the scripture says, yes it says, all the seed of Israel Shall be justified and shall glory. The entire Adamic race shall indeed have life in Christ. Being preserved apart from the law, the Adamic race is not saved for its own sake or by its own merit, but because Yahweh God is sovereign, and therefore all those who initially rebelled against him shall not prevail to ruin. His divine intentions. Scriptural proof forthcoming. The children of Israel, that one small portion of our larger white Adamic race, was chosen of God
1: and was given his law. Thereby,
0: the children of Israel were the vehicle by which Yahweh would exercise his, sovereign, his sovereignty let me pronounce it right by which to display the consequences of good and evil in this current age and by which he chose to keep the path to the tree of life for for which reason the symbol of their government and of God's mercy was the cherub, those sphinx-like creatures which were placed upon the Ark of the Covenant
1: of God. Inside of that Ark was placed the tablets containing the law, the importance of the symbolism is that by keeping the law of God,
0: one is also maintaining the path to the tree of life.
1: Yahweh God is
0: indeed Sovereign, and all those who have continued to rebel against him since he founded this Adamic society and since he chose Israel shall not prevail to ruin his divine intentions. Every knee shall bow, every Adamic knee. That is why Yahweh told the rebellious children of Israel, no matter how much they wanted to go screw up, that he would nullify
1: he would nullify their own covenant with death
0: from isaiah 28:18 your covenant with death shall be disannulled and your agreement with hell shall not stand The white Adamic race has a divine destiny mandated by their creator, and they shall be trained into obedience for it, regardless of their own rebellious minds. That is the purpose of this life. With this, we shall proceed with
1: Romans chapter 5.
0: Verse 1, therefore, having been deemed worthy from out of faith, we had peace before Yahweh, our prince, Yahshua Christ. That's really a conclusion to what we saw in Romans chapter 4 concerning Abraham, the faith, the law, and the promises, and the scope of the promises, and what Abraham believed, which is that the promises would fall to his seed which proceeded from out of his lines. From out of faith, the Christianian New Testament renders the Greek phrase very emphatically. Not only must Christians be of the faith of Abraham, as Paul explained in Romans chapter 4, the promises are only for those who are also products of the faith of Abraham. From that which Abraham believed, which means that they themselves must be seed from Abraham's loins, or they have no part with Abraham, because Abraham did not believe in them. Now, a lot of people are going to be confused. Well, the entire Adamic race, they're not all Israelites, and that's true. But the children of Israel... Between the time of the promise to Abraham and especially the time of the Exodus and the time of Christ, the children of Israel had virtually subsumed what had been left of the entire wider Adamic race. The Parthians in the east, the Scythians in the north, became the Germanic peoples, the Cimmerians, Galatahi, and the Romans themselves and the Greek tribes of the Dorians. They made up the preponderance of peoples in the Roman world. They were all descendants of Abraham. They were all descendants of the children of Israel. What was left of the Hamite and Jepethite nations, well, most of the Hamite nations were thoroughly race-mixed in Africa. A lot of their nations of Shem, the descendants of Shem, in what we know today as Arabia, were race-mixed by this time, at the time of Christ. The people in the East were already race-mixing. The descendants of Japheth, in fulfillment of the promise that Noah made in Genesis chapter 9, were being subsumed into the children of Israel at this time. And that did become fact. It became fact with the Iberians, with the Romans, with the Dorians. It became fact with the, um, the Goths and the Germanic tribes later on, the Angles, the Saxons, who basically took over the entire old
1: Geppethite Europe. Verse 2,
0: through whom, meaning Yahshua Christ, through whom we also have access by faith to this favor in which we are established, and we boast in expectation of the honor of Yahweh. There's some differences in the manuscripts. After the word access, some manuscripts are missing the words by faith. It's not really important. Where in Romans 5.2, the King James Version has rejoice, the word here is boast. The Greek word is kakalbahi. It means to boast. It means to, to speak loud, to be loud-tongued, to boast or vaunt oneself. Some may see a conflict concerning boasting in Paul's thinking in, in some of these verses but there is none. In Romans chapter 2, Paul said that if Abraham had a boast in works, that he should still not boast before God. Here he tells us that Christians should boast in in the expectation which they have in God. When men boast of their works, they boast for their own honor. When men boast of the expectation they have in Christ, they're boasting to the honor of God and not for their own honor. Christians have access to God through faith in Christ. Because Israel is reconciled to God through Christ. By extension, the entire Adamic race is reconciled to God in Christ. Paul explains this same thing at greater length in Ephesians chapter two, on which account from verse 11, On which account you must remember that at one time you, the nations in the flesh, who are the so-called uncircumcised by the so-called circumcised made by hand in the flesh. In fact, what Paul's saying is, is he's basically dismissing the title circumcised and uncircumcised because, in fact, the Israelites of the dispersion who accept Christ were the truly circumcised since circumcision is of the heart. The circumcision of the flesh, which is of the law, means nothing after Christ. Because you have at one time been apart from Christ, Paul speaking to Ephesians, Romans and Greeks for the most part, having been alienated from the civic life of Israel, which means that at one time they had to be Israelites, and strangers of the covenants of the promise, not having hope and in a society without Yahweh. They were estranged from the covenants. But now you are among the number of Yahshua Christ, who at one time, being far away, have become near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, as Paul also tells us here in Romans 5.1. We have peace when we have obedience in Christ, who is made both one, and having broke down the middle wall of the enclosure, Paul's drawing a a picture here, the enclosure symbolically seals Yahweh and Israel apart from the world, where the middle wall kept Israel from God, but it is removed in Christ. The hostility in his flesh, having annulled the law of commandments and ordinances, in order that he would establish the two, circumcised and uncircumcised Israel, with himself into one new man, making peace. And again, reconcile both in one body to Yahweh through the cross, having slain that hostility by it. Paul's talking about the fulfillment of the two-stick prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 37. And having come, he announced a good message. Peace to you who are far away, and peace to those near. Because of him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. However, only Christians... Judeans who became Christians, the circumcised; Israelites dispersed who became Christians, the uncircumcised, so-called. Only Christians have access to God, and that's what the enclosure itself surrounds. Since Christ Himself had said, John fourteen six, "I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through." me access to God. It's for Israel, it's through Christ. And not only Romans five three, and not only, but we should also boast in afflictions, knowing that affliction results in endurance, and the endurance, a tried character, and the tried character and expectation. We should boast in our afflictions. Afflictions are a trial from God. We should feel honored when we're afflicted, because we're children of God. If he doesn't chastise you, you're a bastard and not a son. As Peter in his first epistle mentions, the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, However, there are various reasons for which men suffer affliction. From Psalm 119, 119, from verse 71, it is good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. The law of my mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. Thy hands have made me and fashioned me give me understanding that I may learn thy commandments. They that fear thee will be glad when they see me because I have hoped in in thy word. I know, O Yahweh, that thy judgments are right and that thou hast in faithfulness afflicted me. Let, I pray thee, thy merciful kindness be for my comfort according to the word, to thy word, unto thy servant. From Acts chapter 5, we see a different sort of affliction. The advice of Gamaliel concerning the apostles, it was very good advice, when the Judeans wanted to kill them. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men, and let them alone. For it is for if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught, meaning the gospel. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest haply you be found even to fight against God. And to him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. Now, the Pharisees agreed with Gamaliel, but they did not employ what he had said. Verse 41, And they, meaning the apostles, departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Therefore, Christians suffer affliction because of their own sin and they are corrected by it, and also because they are hated by the enemies of Yahweh, their God. But the building of our Christian character strengthens our expectation, or hope. The the word may have been translated as hope. Verse 5, And the expectation does not disgrace, because the love of Yahweh has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which is given to us. Psalm 25, verse 2. O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. Yeah, let none that wait on thee be ashamed. Let them be ashamed, which transgress without cause. Verse 6, Romans chapter 5. Indeed, when we were feeble or weak, Christ at the appointed time died for the impious. Before Christ, the white Adamic nations were divided and weakened as a race. They had 5,000 different kinds of idolatry. They were divided and warred against each other. They were also under all the power of the enemies of God. They were all pagans. They should be unified in Christ. And for some time they were, however, imperfectly. When in recent times, and for other reasons, they are again divided. Up to the first century, it was only a remnant of true people of our race. Believing the God of the Bible in Judea and its environs. Most of our race had totally departed, including most all of the children of Israel, or pagans at this time, had completely departed from the way. From Daniel chapter 12, from verse 7. And I heard the man, clothed in the linen, which was upon the waters of the river, When he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swore by him that lives forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and a half, a half a time. Twenty-five hundred and twenty prophetic years we usually interpret that as. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. In Christ, the Adamic race shall ultimately be united, which is the end of the prophecy of the Revelation. Verse 7, Romans 5. Though scarcely for the benefit of the upright will one die, for the benefit of the noble, perhaps one then dares to die. Paul is being rhetorical here. Would you give your life freely to save a man? would you give it to save even a just or a noble man? Most of us wouldn't. But Yahweh introduces his own love to us because we, yet being wrongdoers, Christ had died for our benefit. The language of this verse very subtly tells us that Yahshua Christ is indeed Yahweh. It's easy to send somebody else to die for you, right? Yahweh loves us. Therefore, as Yahshua Christ, he died for the benefit of the children of Israel, even though they were neither just nor noble, but they were sinners. From 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he has loved us and has sent his son a propitiation for our errors. From John chapter 11, where the high priest of the Judeans, an enemy of Christ, makes an unwitting prophecy concerning Christ from the King James Version, verse 49. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. That's exactly what happened, because all of Israel was under the penalty of death. And this he spoke, not for himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that he should also gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. The children of God that were scattered abroad were the children of Israel in their dispersions, the nations which descended from Abraham's seed. From Isaiah chapter 29, from verse 22, Therefore, thus saith Yahweh, who redeemed Abraham, concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, neither shall his face now wax pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name and sanctify the holy one of Jacob, and shall fear the God of Israel. They also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. If you don't learn the truth in this life. You'll learn it afterwards. As Paul is about to do, this passage from Psalms also fully indicates the salvation of our entire race, where it says that even they that erred in spirit shall come to understanding, and they that murmured, those that disputed and spoke against God, shall learn doctrine. The prophecy of these things can only apply to the dispersed children of Israel. It can't be applied to the other races. As it does in Isaiah chapter 53 where it says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 9, Romans chapter 5. Still more then, being deemed worthy now by his blood, we will be preserved by him from his wrath. Just as the children of the Exodus had put the blood of the Passover lamb upon their doorposts in Egypt, as a sign to ward off the angel of death. So do Christian Israelites symbolically cover themselves with the blood of the Lamb today. From Revelation chapter 12, from verse 10, And I heard a great voice saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God has come, and the authority of his anointed because the accuser of our brethren has been cast down. He accusing them before our God day and night. Sounds like the Jews to me. And they prevailed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they had not loved their lives even to death. And this reveals a greater purpose of the Adamic man to prevail not only over his own lust, over his own sin, but also over the accuser of our brethren, who's described in that same chapter as the great dragon and that serpent of old, who would persecute the woman, a reference to the children of Israel. The Adamic man prevails in Christ alone, who represents the same tree of life. We shall discuss this at length as it is the subject of the later portions of this very chapter. Romans 5, verse 10. Therefore, if we, being odious or hateful, were reconciled to Yahweh through the death of his son, still more being reconciled will we be preserved in his life. None of this is, Paul ties none of this. Paul associates none of this with personal behavior. He ties it all to national reconciliation. Personal behavior, we'll we'll discuss this shortly. Personal behavior is a separate matter entirely. In Isaiah chapter 60, Yahweh said to a sinful Israel, using the land as an allegory if you read the entire chapter and the one before it, from verse 15, whereas thou hast been forsaken and hated so that no man went through thee, I will make thee an eternal excellency, a joy of many generations. And again, Yahweh, speaking of Israel, in Jeremiah chapter 12, the point here that it being Israel that was forsaken and hated, Paul says here, if we, being odious or being hated, were reconciled to Yahweh. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 7, I have forsaken mine house, meaning Israel, I have left mine heritage. I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. when we sin and don't repent, Yahweh surrenders us to our enemies, to our enemies. Mine heritage is unto me, as a lion in the forest. It cryeth out against me. Therefore have I hated it. He hated his heritage because of their sin. It was Israel who was odious to God on account of her sin, and therefore it is Israel who would need to be reconciled to God for God to maintain his promises to the fathers. Paul himself says that where there is no law, that sin is not imputed. And Romans 5.13, we're about to read that. And since only Israel ever had the law, Psalm 147, verses 19 through 20,
1: then only
0: Israel could possibly be reconciled to Yahweh. Since Yahweh only said that to Israel that you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities, Amos 3.2. One can only be reconciled to someone whom one had already known. All of these biblical themes are intrinsically woven, and to break the context of the Bible is an attempt to rob God himself. Playing with God, that's what people are doing. Verse 11, Romans chapter 5. And not only, but also boasting in Yahweh through our prince, Yahshua Christ, by whom we now have received that reconciliation. The King James translates the verb catalasso Strong's number 2644, as reconciled twice in verse 9 of this chapter. However, here in verse 11, the related noun, Catalogue is atonement in the King James version, where here in the Christian New Testament it is properly reconciliation. In the Septuagint Greek, the verb does not appear at all, and the noun only appears twice in Isaiah nine five and two Maccabees five twenty. And Brenton translates that once as restitution and another as reconciliation. There is no specific word for atonement in Septuagint Greek. However, the Hebrew word was often translated into phrases describing the making of an offering or a propitiation, which is how the noun or the verb, the, the noun being hilaskos and the verb being ex and that's how that frequently appears in the Septuagint. It's always to make a propitiation. So I'm not even certain that the word atonement should even appear in the, in, in the um, King James Version. It should be a propitiation. The children of Israel are beckoned to return to be reconciled to Yahweh in Christ. From Jeremiah chapter 30, from verse 10, Therefore fear thou not. O my servant Jacob, saith Yahweh, neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. The context of the entire Bible, after Israel was put away by God in the books of Kings and Chronicles is the reconciliation of Israel to God. Nobody outside of the literal children of Israel can ever be forced into that picture except that there are transcendent promises to the rest of the white Adamic race, promises which the covenants with Israel did not replace. And Paul is about to discuss them from verse 12. For this reason, just as by one man failure of purpose or sin entered into the society, and by that failure of purpose or by that sin, death, death also Entered into the society through that one man. And in that manner, death has passed to all men, all Adamic men, on account that all had done wrong. Now, in verse 13, Paul begins a long parenthetical statement. And the parenthetical statement explains this statement we just read in verse 12. And The end of this statement which we just read in verse 18. So Paul inserted a parenthetical statement right into the middle of his own thought. So we're going to read and discuss the parenthetical statement and then we will return to verse 12 and put it with verse 18 at the end of verse 17. That's confusing I know That's the scripture. That's the way it was written. Paul says in verse 13, For until the law, sin, and I'm going to use the word sin here. Sin was in the society, but sin was not accounted. There not being law. But death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned, resembling the transgression of Adam who is an image of the future, or an image of that which is coming. If through one man, Adam, death passed to the entire Adamic race, then through the sacrifice of one man, Yahshua Christ, life shall be granted to the entire Adamic race. All Israel shall indeed be saved, and all of the other Adamic nations follow along. Israel was the cherub which maintained the way to the tree of life, the redemption and salvation which is in Christ. Nearly all of the other Genesis 10 Adamic nations had already, in reality, some of them were still around in name, but in reality had passed into oblivion by the time of Christ. Where were the Assyrians? Where were the Egyptians? The Egyptians were already overrun. Their race was destroyed by the blood of Negroes. The same thing with the Kushites. The Assyrians, they were decimated. A lot of them were Arabs by this time. Some of them were, may have survived under the tent of the Parthians, but their nation was gone. The Persians, that, that they were being ruled by the Parthians at this time. And even though some Persians survived into the middle of the Christian era, they'd been overrun by Turks, Mongols. Where were the Medes by this time. They were no longer a national entity at this time, at the time of Christ. The Tartesians had been absorbed into the Romans and the Iberians, the Iberians being Hebrews, Israelites. The Etruscans had been absorbed into the, in, into the Galatahi, the, um, the Celts that invaded the north of Italy, and the Romans to the south. They disappeared. They were not a national entity at this time. Most all of the Adamic nations were gone, even by the time of Christ, no longer recognizable. Some of them seem to have been more fortunate and intermingled with the Israelite tribes that came to dominate the world. Some of them were less fortunate and were overrun with the other races given up to Yahweh's enemies as the Egyptians and the Sabians and the Cushites were. That doesn't mean that those Adamic spirits are destroyed, even though their nations are no longer today. Israel was the cherub which maintained the way to the tree of life, because Israel was given law. That's why the cherub was the symbol of Yahweh and national Israel on the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the tablets of the law. Israel was the cherub, and Israel provided the genealogy through which came the Messiah, the tree of life. The parts of the cherub were itself symbolic of the chief tribes of Israel, the cherub properly. There are other artistic um, renderings found in archaeology that sort of dumbed down the cherub, but the cherub originally was the forefront of a lion, the hind part of a bull, the head of a man, and the wings of an eagle. They were the standards of the chief, the four chief tribes around The tabernacle in the wilderness, the bull Ephraim, the eagle Dan, the man Reuben, and the lion Judah. Even Christ himself explained that the other Adamic nations, such as the Assyrians and the people of Sheba, the queen of the south, that they would also be in the resurrection fulfilling the promise of Genesis 3.22. Paul goes on to say in verse 15, but should not, as was the transgression, in that manner also be the favor. There are only a few other translations which read that clause, the first clause of verse 15, it's a rhetorical question. Some, most translations don't. There are some others which do. The King James Version reads, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. And it's a statement, an indicative statement, and that's acceptable so long as one interprets it according to Paul, that the gift of Christ is much greater than the transgression of Adam in the manner in which he explains it in the sentences which follows. However, it is just as well interpreted as a rhetorical question if one understands that the gift in Christ is granted as a benefit in the same manner as that which the transgression of Adam resulted in a curse, in the sense that they both came through one man unto all men. And Paul continues in verse 15, Indeed, if in the transgression of one many die, much greater is the favor of Yahweh and the gift in favor, which is of the one man, Yahshua Christ, in which many have great advantage. Now, the many are already defined by Paul as all Adamic men, in verses 12 and 14 of this chapter. He's already defined the many. It's not some Adamic men. It's all Adamic men. Paul explains this same thing elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he says, Indeed, since death... Is through a man restoration of the dead is also through a man and then he goes on and defines that where he says in verse 22 just as in Adam all die then in that manner in Christ shall all be produced alive there's no exceptions and in both places, Paul of Tarsus equates the word man with Adam. Therefore, the definition of man, the Greek word anthropos, in the mind of Paul, being equated to Adam, to Adam kind, cannot be taken outside of the bounds of the white Adamic race, the race of those Genesis 10 nations. And that's also the way it's commonly used in the Old Testament. So to Paul of Tarsus, man means Adam. Verse 16, And not then, by one having committed error is the gift. And again, we see a rhetorical question which may have been translated as an indicative statement. Indeed, The fact is, the judgment of a single one is for condemnation, but the favor is from many transgressions into a judgment of acquittal. The Codex Claro adds the words for life to the end of the passage, and accepting that, we would translate Dikahioma as judgment rather than and and, and into a decision rather than an acquittal, because it can mean a judgment, a judgment of the decision for life. Paul tells us pointedly that all Adamic men are acquitted. All Adamic men are granted life through Christ. He explains it twice in this passage. He goes and he he states it in verses 12 and 18, and then he takes verses 13, 14, 15, and 16 to clarify himself and explain it so that there's no misunderstanding. In the end, none of the children of Adam are going to be condemned. Rather, in Yahweh's love for his creations, he had himself condemned in their place in order to fulfill his law. That's where Paul says that, indeed, the fact is that judgment of a single one is for condemnation. But the favor is from many transgressions into a judgment of acquittal for the entire Adamic race. As in... Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive. Paul explains this in one way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, where he says, Therefore, if one is among the number of Christ, a new creation, the old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. But all things from Yahweh, in other words, bastards aren't from Yahweh, There are things here that are not from Yahweh, but all things from Yahweh, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and is giving us the service of reconciliation. That is the transmission of the gospel to Israel. How that Yahweh was within Christ reconciling the society to himself Not accounting their offenses to them. There's no exceptions there. And placing in us the word of that reconciliation. Therefore, on behalf of Christ, we serve as ambassadors, as Yahweh is exhorting through us. We ask, on behalf of Christ, you be reconciled to Yahweh. And here's the part most pertinent to our discussion. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he who knew not sin on our behalf had caused sin in order that we would come into the righteousness of Yahweh with him. He's the one who's condemned. Then Paul explains this in another way in Galatians chapter 3. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Becoming a curse on our behalf, for it is written, accursed is everyone who hangs upon a timber. In order that the blessing of Abraham would come to the nations at the hand of Christ Joshua, that we should receive the promise of the Spirit through the faith, here Paul explains that the entire Adamic race has the gift of life in Christ. There are greater reasons for that. Verse 17, for if, and Paul's still in the middle of his parenthetical statement, for if in the transgression of one, death has taken reign through that one, meaning Adam, Much more is the advantage of the favor and the gift of justice which they are receiving in life. They will reign through the one, Yahshua Christ. Verse 17 completes the parenthetical statement begun in verse 13. Paul's long explanation of salvation for the entire Adamic race should be quite clear even if all the possible details are not included. It is the reader's responsibility to accept that Paul's assertion is true and to examine the rest of Scripture in order to find the whys and the hows. W-H-Y and H-O-W. In truth, the racial message of salvation was later obscured, by universalists and by a Roman Catholic church which adopted Phariseeism over Christianity. And there are still many today, even identity Christians who are or claiming to be identity Christians who are Pharisees and are not Christians. We shall repeat verse 12 and skip over the long parenthetical Statement, continuing with verse 18. For this reason, just as by one man sin entered into the society, and by that sin, death. And in that manner death is passed to all men, on account that all have done wrong. So then, as that one transgression is for all men for a sentence of condemnation, in this manner, then through one decision of judgment, For all men is a judgment of life. Anyone who reads this and disputes that the entire Adamic race is saved in the spirit must deny the words of Paul of Tarsus, both here and in 1 Corinthians 15.22, where he says, Just as in Adam all die, then in that manner in Christ all shall be produced alive. There is no preference here for lesser sinners over greater sinners, for all men have sinned. Therefore, salvation is indeed a racial phenomenon, and Yahweh God is its author, since eternal life for the Adamic race was first promised by him in Genesis 3.22. The creator of our entire race is the author of salvation for that entire race. In the subsequent verses, Paul once again clarifies this by repeating it in a slightly different manner, where he says in verse 19, Therefore, even as though... I'm sorry, even as... Through the disobedience of one man, the many, which Paul's explanations reveal, are all Adamic men. The many were set down as wrongdoers in this manner, and through the obedience of one, the many will be established as righteous. As in Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive, as the King James has it. One of my adversaries, one of the Canaanite thorns in my own side, is that pudgy little rabbi from Chicago who sometimes poses as a Christian identity pastor. He recently said in an email to my friend Don Brown, who will have to hear this in the archives because he's not listening tonight, that Fink will choke on his own Aryan Talmud. He will burn in hell for teaching that whites are automatically saved. Read John 15. That's what he said. The Bible is the Arian Talmud. All I do is repeat what's in the Bible. I don't make anything
1: up. If his
0: interpretation of John 15 is true, then Paul is a liar. However, we shall indeed read John chapter 15 along with this presentation this evening. And we shall discover that Paul is true and the Jew boy is a liar. Paul of Tarsus clearly taught that the entire organic race shall indeed be saved strictly because they are of Adam. And if their seed remaineth in them, then they cannot sin. Paul didn't say that. The Apostle John said that in his first epistle. It is evident that any man who wants to see any of his own Adamic brethren go into the lake of fire is a murderer because that same apostle says in that same epistle, In 1 John 3.15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Seeking the the destruction of the children of Adam in the lake of fire, one likens himself to the accuser of our brethren, the Satan, the serpent of Revelation chapter 12. And every time you hear somebody preaching that a white man, that his eternal spirit is going into the lake of fire, then another satanic serpent is fully exposed. The pudgy little Jew boy in Chicago, by his fruits, we should know him.
1: That part won't be in the
0: notes to this podcast. I'm sorry. That the gospel of Christ has an application for the entire Adamic race is apparent from the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 from verse 18. Because Christ also suffered once for all errors, Christ suffered once for all sin, and what follows has to be connected to this not only the sins under the law, but the sins that were not imputed before the law came along as Paul of Tarsus just explained in Romans chapter 5. Because Christ also suffered once for all sin, the just on behalf of the unjust, in order that he may lead you to Yahweh, indeed dying in the flesh, but being made to live by the Spirit, at which also going he proclaimed to those spirits in prison who at one time had been disobedient when the forbearance of Yahweh awaited in the days of Noah's preparing the vessel in which a few, that is, eight souls had been preserved through the water. If those who sinned in the days of Noah could hear the gospel and be freed from the prison, which I believe is an allegorical prison, from the prison in which they were contained, then what Adamic spirit will not be preserved? Because few of us have sinned beyond those people from the time of Noah. That is why the gates of hell Shall not prevail against the true assembly of Yahweh. From Isaiah chapter 25, from verse 8. He will swallow up death in victory. There will be no death, not for the children of Adam. There will be death for the bastards and the pudgy little Jew boys of the world. He will swallow up death in victory and Yahweh God will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of his people he shall take away from off all the earth, for Yahweh has spoken it. Likewise, from Hosea chapter 13, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be Thy destruction, repentance, shall be hid from mine eyes.
1: In 1 John chapter 2,
0: the apostle states that, My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Then in 1 John chapter 3, the same apostle, just a couple of lines later, says, He that commits sin is of the devil, for the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And then he states from verse 9, Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him. The devil was the world's first fornicator. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. The devil is equated to that old serpent, the rebellious fallen angels of Revelation chapter 12. Therefore, upon Eve's being tempted, Adam's having sinned, and their fall from the grace of God, Yahweh already had foreknowledge of all of this and a plan for Adam's salvation because, as the Apostle Peter tells us, 1 Peter 1.20, Christ was ordained from the foundation of the world. Every Adamic spirit being preserved The deception of the lie, ye shall not surely die, is reversed. And the works of the devil are destroyed. Because Adam did sin and Adam did die. And facing death, Yahshua Christ rescued Adam from death. And he rescued Adam from death to destroy the works of the devil. If all men sin, John really can't be saying that men born of God do not sin. Rather, this is rectified only in the understanding which Paul presents in Romans chapter 4 where he quotes the 32nd Psalm and he says, Blessed are they who are released from lawlessness and whose errors or sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom Yahweh will not account sin. So Paul says here that through one decision of judgment, all men are acquitted.
1: And we have just seen mm-hmm. Peter corroborate that. Paul says it in verses 16 and 19 here in Romans.
0: From the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 15. But thou, O God, art gracious and true, long-suffering, and in mercy ordering all things. For if we sin, we are thine, knowing thy power. But we will not sin, knowing that we are counted thine. For to know thee is perfect righteousness. Yea, to know thy power is the root of immortality. The confusion which clouds this clear scriptural teaching is this, that there are indeed two types of salvation or preservation, and men have confused them. Paul tells us here that every Adamic spirit has eternal life. That is true. For that reason, discussing the fornicator of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, deliver such a wretch to the adversary for destruction of the flesh in order that the spirit may be preserved in the day of the prince. Likewise, in chapter 3 of that same epistle, Paul said, now if anyone builds upon that foundation, meaning the foundation which Christ laid, Gold, silver, precious stones, timber, fodder, straw. The work of each will become evident. Indeed, the day will disclose it because in fire it is revealed. And of what quality the work of each is, the fire will scrutinize. If the work of anyone who is built remains, he will receive a reward. That's the reward for good works. That's where it is important for us to realize that we should keep the law and try to keep the law and love our brethren and store up treasure in heaven. That's what that is, that reward. If the work of anyone burns completely, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be preserved, although consequently through fire. The trials of life. The baptism with fire. Both passages, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, both passages reflect the eternal state of the Adamic spirit. However, the second passage reflects the expected reward Christians have for good works. That is a separate matter entirely. Not to be confused with the eternal state of the Adamic
1: spirit. Salvation
0: or preservation in this life is also a separate matter entirely. Salvation is a matter of preservation in this fleshly life. There are countless examples of this in Scripture. It's in almost every psalm in one way or another. David wrote in the 85th Psalm, verse 7, Show us thy mercy, O Yahweh, and grant us thy salvation. I will hear what Yahweh God will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints, but let them not turn again to folly. David's asking that the people are preserved and that after their preservation, that Yahweh keeps them from folly or from further sin. This mercy, which he requests here, is a supplication that the sins are not punished. Through repentance and a a request for mercy, we hope not to suffer the result of our sins, that one may be preserved in this life. This is evident throughout Scripture on levels of, both national and personal. Luke 13, verses 1 through 5, is another example. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering, said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, do you think that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But except you repent, you shall all likewise perish perish. It's not their spirits that would perish for not repenting, but that their flesh would be destroyed. We are all here to learn the consequences of sin. And when we sin, when we utter it, when we make repentance and admit our sins, as the apostles teach, Yahweh God is kind and merciful and may spare us the punishment of those sins. Without law, I'm sorry, let's read verse 20. Moreover, law entered in addition that the transgression would increase, but where guilt increased, favor exceeded beyond measure that just as sin reigned in death, so then favor shall reign through justice for life eternal through Yahshua Christ our Prince. Without the law, men would not know sin. And that's the subject of Paul's discourse in the later half of Romans chapter 7, where he says, and I'll read from verse 8, but sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was ordained for life, I found to be unto death. So... As Paul told the Galatians, Galatians 3.24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith, because we're all sinners. And when we hear the law, we realize that we should be condemned for our actions. Paul informs us in Romans chapter 8 from verse 1, Now then, There is no condemnation to those among the number of Christ Yahshua. And remember, you didn't choose him, so you don't have a choice in the matter. If you make a covenant with death, if you make a covenant with sin, he will redeem you from it because your covenant with death is not going to prevail because salvation is a racial phenomenon. You don't have a choice in the matter. Now then there is no condemnation to those among the number of Christ Joshua. Indeed the law of the spirit of life in Christ has liberated you from the law of guilt and death. The law is powerless in that it is and weak over the flesh. Yahweh sending His own Son in the likeness of Aaron's flesh and amidst guilt, condemned guilt in the flesh, or sin, and amidst sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the judgment of the law should be fulfilled among us who walk not in accordance with the flesh, but in accordance with the spirit. We should seek, knowing this, knowing that we have this this mercy, knowing that we have this great favor, we should, and, and knowing that we have eternal life, we should seek to uphold the spirit of the laws of God. Because forever is a long time. And if we don't come to obedience, we will remain in punishment. But in the end, every knee shall bow. Because that's the divine will of God. But no Adamic man is going to be destroyed in a lake of fire. The works of the devil get destroyed in a lake of fire. What are the works of the devil? Let's start with the fornicators, the, 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 the products of sin, their fornication, the bastards, the other races that did not come from God. Adamic man was created by Yahweh God to be immortal. That is why after the fall from the grace of God, the promise of Genesis 3.22 is eternal life. If indeed man should grasp onto the tree of life. In his sin, man forsook the tree of life. The result of that sin, among other statements, is the statement, and Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life. Why would he take also of the tree of life? Because he fornicated with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and take also the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore, Yahweh God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed
1: at the east end
0: of the garden cherubims, plural, and the flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. I believe that those cherubims on the Ark of the Covenant represented those cherubims at the east end of the Garden of Eden. They were placed on the Ark because the Ark contained the law of God. The law of God is the way to Christ. If you love me, keep my commandments. Obedience in Christ is the way to Christ and the way to the salvation of our entire race. I could take that analogy a step further and say that
1: The cherubims were placed at the east end of the garden because the east is
0: where the sun rises, the sun rising in the east, that is also an analogy for Christ. With this, we shall read from the Septuagint, from the Wisdom of Solomon, from chapter 2. The attitude of the ungodly is reflected at the beginning of this chapter. For the ungodly said, reasoning within themselves, but not aright, our life is short and tedious, and in the death
1: And in the death of man, there is no remedy.
0: Neither was any man known to have returned from the grave. This is the words of the ungodly now. For we are born at all adventure. In other words, randomly, it doesn't make a difference. And we shall be hereafter as though we had never been. For the breath in our nostrils is as a smoke, and a little spark in the moving of our heart, which being extinguished, our bodies shall be turned into ashes, and our spirits shall vanish as the soft air, and our name shall be forgotten in time, and no man shall have our works in remembrance, and our life shall pass away as the trace of a cloud, and shall be dispersed as a mist that is driven away with the beams of the sun. And overcome with the heat thereof. And now I'm going to skip ahead, but I'll include the entire chapter with my notes. Verses 12 through 20 reflect the result of the attitude of the ungodly and the sin that they engage in because of their attitude. Verses 20... forward reflect the folly of their ways. I'm sorry, verses 21 forward reflect the folly of their ways and the folly of their attitude. Where it says, such things they did imagine, and they were deceived, for their own wickedness has blinded them. As for the mysteries of God, they knew them not neither hoped they for the wages of righteousness, nor discerned a reward for blameless souls. For God created man to be immortal, and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Nevertheless, through envy of the devil came death into the world, and they did hold of his side to find it. God created man to be mortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. According to 1 John chapter 3, it is the devil who sinned from the beginning. Through envy of the devil, death came into the world. The devil sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And all those born of God do not commit sin, ostensibly because all of the Adamic race is made alive through Christ and sin will not be imputed to them provided that their seed remains in them. What does that mean? It can only mean that they're pure of their race, that they are kind after kind from Genesis chapter 1. Here in 1 John chapter 3, we see corroboration for the statement that through envy of the devil, death came into the world. That envy of the devil is the story of Genesis chapter 3. And the attempted corruption of the Adamic race in fornication. However, at the end of that chapter, Adam is assured that he shall live so long as he puts forth his hand and takes also of the tree of life and eats and lives forever. From the Septuagint, from Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 3, the next portion of the book, The Reward of the Righteous. But the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and there shall no torment touch them. The righteous aren't who men deem right. The righteous are who God deems right. In the sight of the unwise, they seem to die, and their departure is taken from misery, and they're going from us to be utter destruction. But they are in peace. For though they be punished in the sight of man, yet their hope is full of immortality. And having been a little chastised, they shall be greatly rewarded, for God proved them and found them worthy for himself. As gold in the furnace, he has tried them and received them as a burnt offering. And in the time of their visitation, they shall shine and run to and fro like sparks from the stubble. They shall judge the nations and have dominion over the people. And Yahweh shall reign forever. They that put their trust in him shall understand the truth. And such as be faithful in love shall abide with him. For mercy and grace is to his saints, and he has care for his elect. Israel means he will rule with God. The nations and the people which the righteous shall judge must be the rest of the Adamic race. We see a close description in Revelation chapter 22. If we examine the wisdom of Solomon, if you really understand the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, which were both written by King Solomon, if we study the wisdom of Solomon, we would detect, and I, I believe this is true, I wholeheartedly believe it, we should discern that the wisdom of Solomon was indeed written by the same author. <clears> that The book asserts it was written by Solomon, The apostles often quoted that things that the apostle said were certainly inspired by the wisdom of Solomon. Many of the analogies and allegories in the wisdom of Solomon appear in the Gospel and in the epistles. With all of these things being said in mind, since Christ is the tree of life, We shall commence to read from the words of Christ concerning that tree from John chapter 15, continuing to offer some other correlating scriptures as a commentary. I am the true vine, and my father is the planter. Christ is the author of his own race, being the planter of the weed, as he explains in Matthew chapter 13, and as Paul later tells us, being firstborn among many brethren. Each branch in me, not bearing fruit, he takes it. And each bearing fruit, he cleanses it, in order that it would bear more fruit. And we have to understand this, along with the statement of Christ, that a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. And a bad tree cannot bear good fruit, which are the words of Christ himself in Matthew chapter 7. And these ideas shall converge when we read parts of chapter 4 of the Wisdom of Solomon, which we will discuss after this. You are already clean, this is John fifteen three. you are already clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. You abide in me, and I in you. Just as the branch is not able to bear fruit by itself unless it should abide on a vine, thusly neither do you unless you would abide in me. If we do not stand in God's law, we shall come to naught. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who is abiding in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me, you are not able to do anything. So we must keep his law if we are going to flourish. If one should not abide in me, he shall be cast outside like a branch that is withered, and they shall gather him, gather and they shall cast him into the fire and it burns. When we break God's law, if we do not abide in him, he casts us outside and we are destroyed. Our flesh, is destroyed. Paul says of the fornicator in one Corinthians five, five, to deliver such a one to Satan for destruction, for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul said, speaking in one Timothy chapter one, verse twenty, of two other men who betrayed him, that he delivered them to Satan so that they learn not to blaspheme. When Satan destroys them, those spirits will have learned the result of their blasphemy. Verse 7, John 15, If you abide in me and my words should abide in you, Whatever you should desire, you may ask, and it shall come to you. In this, my Father is honored, that you would bear much fruit, and you would be my students. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. You abide in my love. If you will keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, just as I have kept the commandments of my Father and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you in order that my joy would be in you and your joy would be fulfilled. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. A greater love than this no one has, that one should lay down his life on behalf of his friends. You are my friends if you would do the things which I command you. No longer do I call you a servant, because a servant does not know what his master does. Now, In the Old Testament, Yahweh called Israel his servant and his relationship. This relationship must be what Christ refers to here, the relationship between Yahweh and Israel, where Israel was Yahweh's servant. Now Christ said that they're not going to be his servants any longer. They're going to be his friends but you I have proclaimed friends because all things which I have heard from my father I have made known to you you have not chosen me but I have chosen you and I have ordained you in order that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit would abide that whatever you may ask the father in my name he would give to you These things I command you, that you love one another. When we keep the laws of God, we have a promise that we bear fruit. From Psalm 103, from verse 17. But the mercy of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his commandments to do them. Children's children flourishing on the vine is a result of obedience to God this idea is also repeated in Psalm 128 blessed is everyone that fears Yahweh and walks in his ways for thou shalt eat the the labor of thine hands happy shalt thou be and it shall be well with thee thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house Thy children like olive plants round about thy table. Behold, that thus shall be the man that thus shall the man be blessed that fears Yahweh. Yahweh shall bless thee out of Zion, and thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. Yeah, thou shalt see thy children's children, and peace upon Israel flourishing on the vine is a result of obedience to God. From the wisdom of Solomon, chapters 3 and 4, we shall have help by which to establish that the branches which are broken off from the vine are the unlawful children of fornication, which are bastards. From verse 16 of chapter 3, as for the children of adulterers, And these are the brute of the ungodly and the bastard slips, which are going to be mentioned in the subsequent verses. As for the children of adulterers, they shall not come to their perfection, and the seed of an unrighteous bed shall be rooted out. Children of fornication, they have the same fate as the allegorical children of Jezebel. In the revelation, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be rooted up, all the bastards. For though they they live long, yet shall they be nothing regarded. And their last days shall be without honor. Or if they die quickly, they have no hope, neither comfort in the day of trial. For horrible is the end of the unrighteous generation, and the word is genea, and it means race. Better it is to have no children and to have virtue, for the memorial thereof is immortal, because it is known with God and with men. When it is present, men take example at it, and when it is gone, they desire it. It wears a crown and triumphs forever having gotten the victory, striving for undefiled rewards. But the multiplying brood of the ungodly shall not thrive, nor take deep rooting from bastard slips, the children of the adulterers, mentioned five or six verses ago, nor lay any fast foundation. For though they flourish in branches for a time, yet not, yet standing not last, they shall be shaken with the wind, and through the force of winds they shall be rooted out. The imperfect branches shall be broken off, their fruit unprofitable, not ripe to eat. Yeah, meat for nothing, for children begotten of unlawful beds, are witnesses of a wickedness against their parents in their trial. That doesn't mean that the bastards are accepted, for we have already seen that they are broken off from the vine, being the brood of the ungodly.
1: When we sin, when well, we don't repent from our
0: sin, Yahweh cast us out, and when we're cast out, we're consumed by our enemies. we consumed by the other races. The first sin of Adam and Eve was fornication, represented by the eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Therefore, Adam would have life because Yahweh assured the path to the tree of life through those who maintained his laws and who didn't mix their race. As Christ himself said, every plant which my heavenly father hath not planted shall be rooted up. In the end, all of the bastard slips shall be removed from the vine, which is the Adamic race with Christ at its head. And the entire Adamic race, as we've seen Paul attest, and as segments of the writings of Peter and John support, The entire Adamic race, in the end, is preserved and has eternal life. The rooting up of the bastard's lips, that's the day of vengeance. And the vengeance of Yahweh is not against his creation. It's against the corruption of his creation. In the end, all of his creation will be restored of men, that includes only the white Adamic race. I'll be here tomorrow night discussing, in a timely fashion, the non-Adamic races in eschatology and times prophecy. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, and good night.